Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Hey there, dear listeners. Welcome to a new episode of the AMR Studio. This one is a very special episode made to celebrate and commemorate this year's World Antimicrobial Awareness Week, previously known as World Antibiotic Awareness Week. There are so many events and activities happening around the world this week, all of them trying to raise awareness of the AMR issue, and of course we wanted to also be part of them. Also, we are celebrating our two-year anniversary. Can you believe two years of the AMR Studio, monthly episodes and special episodes? Thank you so much for everyone that has been with us thus far. Today, we are talking about AMR, human behavior, and the upcoming Uppsala Health Summit. Regardless if you are comfortably sipping on your favorite drink, working in the lab, doing experiments, or commuting to your next appointment, we really hope that you enjoy being with us in this episode. Let's dive right in. It has always fascinated me that although antimicrobial resistance is at its core a very biological phenomenon, Resistance would actually not be a problem if it weren't because humans are in the middle of the picture. In fact, resistant genes have been in bacterial and microbial genomes way longer than we humans have been on Earth, simply because these genes are part of the ecology and natural relationships among these microbes. It wasn't really until we started using antimicrobials as treatments, growth promoters and prophylactics that the emergence, presence and spread of resistance became an issue. And of course, as you know it today, an important global health threat. No matter how many new antibiotics we find or how faster our diagnostic tests get, if we are not able to change how people relate to antibiotics, we are definitely not going to be able to solve this crisis. Ultimately, it's up to our behavior to find a way out. And yes, in one way or another, we are all part of this. Isn't it beautiful? On this premise, the Uppsala Health Summit right now is organizing its upcoming summit, scheduled to take place digitally on March 2021. The Uppsala Health Summit has traditionally been an arena to bring together different stakeholders and stimulate conversations around global health issues. And already in 2015, they had a summit focused on AMR as a whole. Now it is the time for the summit to focus on one of the most important aspects of the AMR issue. How to change behaviors to reach a sustainable future where we are still able to treat infections. This new summit has the title Managing Antimicrobial Resistance Through Behavior Change and it will be a mix of open plenary sessions and more intimate workshop sessions with the overarching goal of stimulating new approaches and behavior change in quite a lot of different areas. This is super, super interesting. We were able to talk to Ulf Magnusson, the chair of the organizing committee for this summit. He is a licensed veterinarian and a professor at the Swedish Agricultural University and, as he tells us, has seen the effects of AMR in the animal sector from the very beginning of his career. Actually, my first summer as a replacing veterinarian, I experienced this AMR issue at that time. I was told by the old guy that I was replacing. He said at that farm, you cannot use these and these antibiotics because the piglets there are resistant or the bacteria in the pigs are resistant. So that was actually a first uh, experience. Then I was in practice a few years. And then I took on some PhD studies in kind of clinical immunology. I went for a postdoc in Canada. Then I started to work on zoonotic diseases, more field-oriented work, because I I spent a lot of time in the lab and I I found it too slow to make progress there. And I I really wanted to make some change. I worked in low-income countries on zoonotic diseases. 
And then the last five, six years, I started to work on AMR because I realized as a licensed Swedish veterinarian, you have these thoughts, uh, the concept of AMR in your DNA, and you can uh, contribute a lot. One of the greatest challenges today when it comes to the use of antibiotics is to stop their use as growth promoters, something that is already banned here in the Nordics and in European Union, but not in other parts of the world. Since the 1986, there has been a ban on feed additive or adding antibiotics to feed. And that is this kind of growth promotion, as you said. And then some 20 years later, it became a ban in the European Union. And uh, I think my old Swedish colleagues uh, made a lot of work to uh, making that happening. It was a lot of lobbying in Sweden and more and more countries around the world now is banning the use of antibiotic as growth promotion. Wolf's extensive international collaborative work has allowed him to get a broad and big perspective on how different countries tackle the AMR problem. And we were curious to know if he has seen a change in the interest around behavior change interventions in this area. I work with the FAO, the UN, with the World Bank, with the World Organization for Animal Health and International Livestock Research Institute in Nairobi. And um, I think you could say that there is a more interest in looking into driving forces and especially behavioral change. It's a set of studies coming up the last five, 10 years, perhaps, what we call knowledge, attitude, and practices studies, uh, trying to understand um, why farmers and veterinarians are working or, or using antibiotics and thereby finding uh, interventions. We have such a project ourselves. I'm coordinating a GPI AMR project in Thailand where we look into these things. So both scientifically and also policy-wise, I think there are now an increasing interest in behavioral change. It's not only looking into prevalences of phenotypic resistance or certain genes and so, it's also this uh, human factor, so to say. But how do we get people to change behaviors? Some might argue that putting policies in place is the way to go. For example, policies that regulate the use of antibiotics, their production and marketing, and that prevent the misuse and abuse of these drugs. But as Ulf tells us, policies alone might not be the solution. Policy frameworks are important. And nowadays with these national action plans are coming in place in many, many countries. But in which is most close to my heart, the situation in low-income countries to enforce these things are not always that easy. It's, it's a cost, it's uh, resources. So you have to match that with uh, intelligent incentives for, for changing behavior as, as well. So uh, just ticking the box and saying, now we have a policy. Oh, and, and it's the true in Europe as well, that in some countries, policies are more like uh, voluntary guidelines, uh, whereas in other countries, they are actually law. So it's a, it's a lot of cultural differences here. What I've seen as a veterinarian with the AMR issue in my, in my DNA, so to say, is that there's a, a lot of differences or variation in the relationship to AMR in livestock around the world. In some places, veterinarians are getting money for selling antibiotics. Uh, in many places, their antibiotics are freely available over the counter. There's no prescription. Uh, legalization is weak and so. 
And um, I think if you really want to make changes fast, policies are important. So you have support by that. But then you really have to understand the driving forces along the chain from the consumer to the farmer, to the veterinarian, to the drug dealer, the agrochemical shops. Uh, I used to say like um, Woodward Bernstein in the Watergate scandal, follow the money and pinpoint on, on the weak points there and provide good incentives for change. These cultural differences, the particular contexts, and the unique needs for the specific groups must be taken in account when finding the right incentives to promote a particular behavior change. Ulf pinpoints as to what incentives might work for farmers and veterinarians in his experience. Yeah, when it comes to the farmers, if you start there, they have to have a healthy and productive animals without antibiotics. So you have to put a lot of um, preventive measures in place. And that is also a cost for this. Much is management, uh, but there are also other kind of investments you have to make. And then when it comes to veterinarians, they have to be consulted for the preventive thing. They need skills. And also they have to have something to sell, so to say, these skills. The, the farmer must be willing to pay for these kind of services. For instance, in some European countries, veterinarians are doing a lot of money by selling antibiotics. Uh, that is a perverted incentive. And that this is true also for physicians or medical doctors uh, outside Europe uh, in low-income countries. So you have to identify all the players And I think economic incentives are, are the strongest. Farmers and veterinarians are just two of the groups where a potential behavior change can help the AMR issue. But we cannot forget the human medicine side of all this. Having doctors, nurses, pharmacists and patients as groups where behaviors can also be changed. We ask Ulf if he has seen a lot of differences when it comes to these aspects between veterinary medicine and human medicine. I think it's surprisingly generic. One of the workshops which I was involved in before I became the chair, we, we both look into human behavior in medicine and human behavior in, at farms or, or in, in livestock. So I think there are quite a lot of generic when it comes to the mental aspects and how to communicate change and so. And I think this kind of cross-fertilization between disciplines, if we have human medicine, veterinary medicine, and behavioral science, to put it that together, it's, I think it's very rewarding. In this summit, there will be discussions around a lot of different aspects where behavior and antimicrobials coincide. And we asked Ulf, given this quite broad approach, what are the ultimate outcomes that they will want to have for such a summit? how the, the summit is set up now, a plan to, to be set up. Of course, it will be a virtual thing. So this informal interaction is the hallmark of the Uppsala Health Summit, and, and we will lose that in some way. But the upside is that the plenary sessions will be public on the internet, so we will reach a large audience. Hopefully that will convey the message that behavioral change is important. So that is one thing. Then we will have the workshops in close meetings by invitations as usual. And uh, there are different themes. We have eight workshops and uh, there will be important key players that are participating in these workshops. So there is a dual communication way in the sense that they provide inputs to the workshops and the workshop as such influence them. 
So they, when they come home and, and act in their different positions, they will hopefully make changes in a positive way. And uh, we will have a post-conference report when we synthesize these uh, workshops. These kinds of syntheses could be used in various uh, ways by all kinds of stakeholders. So to promote the issue of behavioral change, I think that is the main outcome we are aiming for. We were also super curious as to what challenges they face when they start to set up this very multidisciplinary and complex summit. To me, it's just crazy that they need to bring together all these different scientists from different areas and kind of come up to a you know, common ground. We didn't have a committee chair in the very beginning. So it was the secretariat that invited some people from the Uppsala region, from the different stakeholders. And then we had some uh, brainstorming uh, meetings. Then they approached me to be the chair because uh, I had been involved in the Uppsala Health Summit before uh, running a workshop some years ago on zoonosis. And uh, it, it has been a very organic, academic, anarchistic uh, process. It's uh, very dynamic. And uh, to get people having the same understanding of what behavioral change is it has taken a little bit time but uh, no no conflicts and so just reminding us what the the core concept is and then different perspectives i i have found it quite smooth and stimulating and then of course all colleagues in these um, different working groups uh, they have their networks they have their wishes of presenters and so and then we approach them in principle, this summit was scheduled to take place this past month of October on site in Uppsala. But after the COVID-19 pandemic became evident, the organizing committee had to quickly change plans and come up with a new concept. This is the digital summit that we are working on right now. The current epidemic has not only changed how the summit will be in practice, but it also provides additional context and importance to the very conversation of how humans behave around our global health problem. Ulf draws the parallels in a very beautiful way. The COVID, of course, affected the layout of the summit, uh, technically, but also the COVID highlight quite a few of the issues that we are discussing here. I mean, we have learned about the importance of prevention. I think everyone around the world have understood that of disease prevention and also the importance of behavioral change. Different countries have taking different uh, measures and pathways here. And that is exactly what we are discussing in the, in the summit, which are the most feasible ways to change behavior in this. Is it hard laws? Is it recommendations, etc., etc.? So that is uh, very interesting in this terrible pandemic. I really want to, to stress that. But uh, it's a lot of similarities. So become even more timely, so to say. For this episode, we were also lucky to talk to Brigitta Litzi, one of the most engaged physicians at the Uppsala University Hospital, working on infection prevention and control. She is also co-organizing one of the workshops at the summit, which focuses on disease prevention and how to sustainably apply knowledge to practice. About 15 years ago, the Uppsala University Hospital faced a bad outbreak of a multi-resistant bacteria named Klebsiella pneumonia. And it became evident that the behaviors and attitudes of the personnel at the hospital regarding hygiene and infection control were not optimal. 
It was then that they decided to have more doctors in the Division of Infection Prevention and Control, and Brigitta joined the quest of optimizing the protocols and practices that can reduce the spread of infections in hospitals. Brigitta tells us what the Infection Prevention and Control Unit does. Infection Control is a department that is a supportive department. We can't decide. We just support wards, staff, and we don't have any patients and we don't have any direct contacts with patients. Instead, we have contact with staff and leadership and leadership in wards, leadership in hospital, leadership in, uh, in the region. Because uh, staff and leadership, they don't have the knowledge mm. in detail. We also take care of crisis when they have outbreaks or yeah. when they have infections. Mm -hmm. For example, in the neonatal unit or in surgery or uh, orthopedic surgery and thoracic surgery. Mm -hmm. We take care of problems. We, we are an expert mm -hmm. unit to manage mm -hmm. infections that are caused by healthcare. We have uh, uh, these kind of inf infections in uh, primary care mm -hmm. and in long elderly homes. After the 2015 outbreak, a lot of efforts were put to highlight the importance of hygiene and hand washing at the hospital to control and prevent this kind of hospital-acquired infections. And Brigitta, luckily, has seen the change since then. A lot of things have changed for the better, but we are not perfect, far mm -hmm. from it. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different attitude among uh, doctors and nurses and uh, and other staff about uh, the importance of hygiene and infection control. Fifteen years ago, I al always had to defend the evidence behind hand hygiene. And now, especially now with uh, the pandemic, nobody is questioning the importance of hand hygiene. But why was it so difficult in the first place for hospital staff to believe that hand washing and proper hygiene are the answers to the spread of the bacteria? Vigita tells us that, first of all, it comes down to education. I think uh, because the doctors in my age, I'm 53 years old, I didn't learn about hygiene in medical school, not for one single hour. So uh, doctors in my age, they have learned after they have graduated by other categories, for example, nurses. Mm -hmm. And I think we doctors are very reluctant to uh, getting instructions from, uh, for example, a nurse. So uh, one important thing that I changed when I started was to expand the education, the hygiene education in medical school here at Uppsala University. So now we are educating the students in eight out of 11 terms. Oh. different aspects of uh, infection control. So now the young doctors, they are just, they think it's uh, so natural. They think it's like they learn about liver disease and uh, heart disease and, mm -hmm. and, and hygiene. And we show them the evidence and they just swallow it. But education is not all. And as we talked about what are the best roads to change behaviors in the settings that Brigitta works with, we learn that it is sometimes more about the culture and traditions of the workplace rather than the knowledge that individual people have about the issue. 
I think that nobody voluntarily would like to cause infection to a patient. Nobody would want that. So why are people not complying with the hand hygiene? That is because uh, we have organizational problems mm -hmm. more than we have individual problems. Mm -hmm. Of course we have problems with attitudes, but the main problem is uh, the workload, the shortage of staff, the absence of uh, role models, mm -hmm. the culture. We don't have a speak up culture in the hospital and we don't have the engagement of the leadership. Mm -hmm they prioritize other things. Yeah. So that is why it is so difficult to change behavior. Mm -hmm. In the context of a doctor meeting a patient or a nurse meeting a patient, it's not voluntarily, it's because we don't have it in the system. We have a contact with doctors and nurses, but we can't educate all, the, all of them. There are 8,000 mm -hmm. in uh, Uppsala University Hospital and, and uh, 11,000 working in Uppsala Kommun. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have too many people to educate and education will not change behavior because everybody knows about the importance of hand hygiene and dress code. And we have the guidelines mm -hmm. and we audit and feedback results. And we have reminders, we have everything in place except culture, leadership, organizational mm -hmm. efforts. That is what's lacking. And I said five elements mm -hmm. in order to work with uh, behavior and, and hand hygiene. That is, you have to monitor and feedback. We, we do that since 10 years, mm -hmm. every month. We have reminders in the workplace, we have education, we have the guidelines, but we don't have the culture. Patient safety culture, and that is the same in most hospitals. In her experience, also there is an important disconnection between behaviors and consequences that is adding a layer of complexity when trying to find ways for behavioral change. I think uh, if everybody could see the consequences immediately or if they could see the bacteria or see the virus that would be more natural but the problem is like if you take for example in the operating theater you have uh, the surgeons nurses in the wound and then you have the anesthesiologist and if they don't follow hand hygiene they will never see the result they will never see the patients again because the infections, they develop in uh, other departments yeah. or at home or in a hospital in Falun. So if you don't see the consequences, you don't change. So what we see is in departments in the hospital where they can have a chance to see the consequences, for example, in neonatal care, if they are not following hygiene rules, the babies will uh, get uh, infected. So, and for example, in the burns unit, intensive care, mm -hmm. they 
are the wards which have the best results mm -hmm. because they can see the consequences mm -hmm. immediately. But if you go to, for example, in other departments where you don't see the immediate consequence, then it's so hard for people to change yeah. when they have so many other things to think about. Preventing infections and preventing the spread of already existing infections are two key things to tackle the AMR problem. As ultimately, if there are no infections, there is no need to use antibiotics. So we asked Brigitte what role does she thinks that the general public can have directly on this area? I think preventing infections in daycare, you should definitely apply the rules for hand hygiene. Mm -hmm in all contexts where you put a lot of people in a small space. And I think, uh, for example, in gyms, in schools, you should uh, introduce hand hygiene. Because what we have seen during the, in 2009, when we had the swine flu and everybody was disinfecting hands, you could see the numbers of infections were decreasing dramatically. And I think a lot of antibiotic is used in, uh, for children in mm -hmm. daycare. That could be a saver to prevent the spread of infections mm -hmm. and, and prevent infections. But what strategies would work in order to change behaviors regarding this prevention when it comes to the general public? Bijita's experience with hospital staff can teach us some important lessons. My experience is that you have to repeat it. Repeat, 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 and you have to make it difficult to do wrong. Because you have to change attitudes and motivation is very high in the beginning of a crisis. Mm -hmm. And then it tends to uh, become the new normal. Mm -hmm. So you have to repeat the same message in a different way mm -hmm. many, many times. Mm -hmm. This is what we see now in Uppsala. We see uh, a new kind of uh, spread. We see the spread again mm -hmm. because people are getting relaxed. They are relaxing. They have heard it. You saw on the sign here uh, for students, mm -hmm. there was a sign saying, you already know this. Yes, yes I You saw already it. know this. Keep the distance, hand hygiene and so on. Everybody knows it. So you have to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it in different ways. And some final notes from Brigitte actually highlight that there is a potential for a bright future, where sustainable changes have been implemented through education and motivation. I think the young students, they are my hope, actually, <laughs> and I keep telling them that, because I see that young doctors and nurses, they have a completely different attitude than doctors in my age. I think that education mm -hmm. at an early stage is a very important element. So the new generation is my hope. It will not be a surprise to you that our centre is also involved in this summit, co-organising a workshop with focus on communication of AMR to change behaviours. We are working on this together with REACT and the Uppsala Monitoring Centre, two key groups in the city working with communications around health issues. Our workshop aims at bringing together communication experts, experts in human health and animal health, journalists, scientists and policymakers to explore how communication strategies could lead to behaviour change. We are really, really excited about this opportunity and put our little seeds in this very important topic. If you are interested to know more about the summit, 
sessions, workshops, etc., please check the website linked in the show notes. And of course, stay tuned for the plenary sessions as they will be open for anyone around the world to join in. Thank you so, so much for being with us one more episode. If you are new here, be sure to subscribe to our show in your preferred platform. But if you are a return listener, thank you for supporting our work with your time. It has been two years of learning and improvement, and we are so happy that you enjoy our content. Till the next episode, everyone. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nys for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.